jealous to stop by Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> Paris. Well, um, let's get started. <laughs> let's. We're going to pray, and then uh, we'll get rolling. Father, thank you for your word and the people that you've gathered here to talk about it and learn from it. Um, help us to know you and experience you in it, especially as we kind of wrap up the Old Testament and talk about your prophets, who can be confusing and difficult to kind of like place. Help us to see what you're saying, um, how you're saying it, and help us to, I don't know, gain a sense of how we should read your word and then do it. Uh, lift us up to you. In your awesome name we pray. Amen. Cool. Alright, so this is it. This is game over. This is the last class for part one of the story of everything, which I think is a really funny title, the story of everything, part one. Um, we have covered, as of today, we'll have practically covered the entire Old Testament, which is actually like, even though we were going to try to cover the entire Bible in this class, just covering the Old Testament is a pretty substantial feat. Um, it's a very long book. Uh, or I should say series of books and it covers a significant amount of history um, and the other thing that it does is it just covers so much that is essential and we'll talk about this more today but it covers so much that is essential for understanding who Jesus is and the work that we're going to come to in the New Testament that you can't you can't really jump through too many things in the Old Testament too quickly otherwise you don't understand the full like sigh of relief when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and we want to get that as much as we can I think that's like the if we can like if we've done this well when we come to the New Testament we're like Jesus shows up and Matthew says like this is the son of Abraham the son of David that moment means very little to us but if we've unpacked this that moment should be like he's the hero we've been waiting for you know like you just have these things and he's always going to be tapping into these moments throughout his preaching so not that the only reason we do this is to point us towards Jesus, though that is probably the primary reason. But if we get it, then the New Testament makes m- so much more sense. Um, so just in way of review, since this is the last time we'll hang out before we do another one, um, in six weeks, we have covered basically three acts. We said the Bible has six acts, if we're talking about it from a story standpoint, six large acts, and we've covered three of them so far. In the first part of the class, we hit act number one, which was Genesis 1 through 2, the creation of the earth, um, the introduction of the characters of the story, the introduction of God primarily, and then of image bearers uh, and the place they're going to live. And so we learned that uh, God is a good creator who wields power for the sake of flourishing in life. We learned that image bearers are made in his image and commissioned to do likewise. And then we learned that the place that they put them is good. And at this moment, it's a unified space. God dwells with his people. So that sets the stage for like the drama that's going to engage in chapter 3. Um, with chapter 3 comes act 2, which is the fall as God is rejected by his people. Um, as we decide that we want to wield our power on our own, choose how to be our own gods, choose how to have lordship. Um, and God is like, okay, if that's what you want, like here's your inheritance. And then Genesis 3 through 11 is the spiral of like, what is, does that look like in practicality? So you have it, Adam and Eve feel shame, Cain kills Abel, Lamech collects women like property and brags about it and then the biggest kind of moment of that is Genesis 11 um, in the Tower of Babel as people are like we're going to fix the world on our own without God Um, that's act two act three is what we began um, a while ago Um, (laughs) I don't remember when with the calling of Abram in chapter 12 Um, and God enters in a covenant relationship with this dude named Abram and he says hey through you 
I'm going to begin a rescue mission to resolve the tension of Genesis 3 through 11. How are we going to answer those questions? How are we going to fix that world? And I'm going to do it through you. And so through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And then from there, we track that story on. As you follow Abram's journey, you get the uh, people of Israel are in slavery and you get the um, Exodus story. Then God leads his people into the wilderness and he makes a covenant with them. Notice that I use this blue color for covenants on the map, um, our narrative map here. Appreciate that. What is that? Covenant blue. Covenant blue. Pink fire. Because um, I didn't have a red. Um, and red stains this board for some reason. Um, oh yeah, God enters into covenant relationship with him here and he says, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to fulfill the Genesis 12 commission? Oh, it's because I'm going to make you a nation of priests, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. And then to do that, he gives them Torah, his law and instructions, like what it will look like for them to be a distinct people. He gives them the tabernacle, the place where his presence will dwell. So it'll be the unifying of spaces. And then <coughs> he gives them a land, which leads us into the conquest. So Joshua takes over where Moses left off, leads them into the promised land. Um, they begin to take over, um, drive out the people there. We dealt with that last week, um, which leads us to Joshua dies. We get judges which is like another downward spiral. Oh, this is a downward spiral. This is, if you don't understand the spiral, <laughs> sin tends to happen here, rebellion, downward spiral. So this is Exodus 32, the worship of the golden calf. Here the people get lazy and begin to worship false gods again. Spiral. Um, they need, Judges' kind of constant refrain is the people did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel. So they've rejected God as king. And they're doing whatever they see fit, wielding their power like the first image bearers did as they so choose. And what you see is that the vulnerable are suffering. You get the worst accounts of human sin um, in Judges, maybe in the entire Bible, as people with power exploit the vulnerable, exploit the suffering, um, exploit minorities, exploit women. It's just awful. God is like constantly bringing new judges in to remove that, to lead Israel in. Um, but then we come to this point where it's like, oh, we need something more. And so we get the story of the kings. Israel chooses their own king first, and they get Saul. Um, he's not great. Um, then they get David. David is great. And God makes another blue covenant with David um, that through David, um, another king will come, a king whose dynasty will last forever. Um, part of this promise is that David's descendants will build for God a temple, and Solomon does that, which is a king directly following. But we get this bigger promise about your dynasty will rule forever. It'll be a throne of justice and peace and equity. And we're like, well, that's a great promise. But what does that mean? Because Solomon's not that. And Solomon's so not that, even though he builds a temple, that when his son takes over, um, the kingdom splits into two. So you get northern Israel, southern Judah. Both of them just go pretty much haywire until um, Israel is taken over in 722 by Assyria. And then Babylon takes over Judah, and here is my picture, pink for fire. Um, in Second Kings, you get the exile, a lot of the prophets. Then they come back, and I had no room to draw anymore, but there's quite a few more stories after that. You get uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, they come back into the land. They're like building the temple. They're rebuilding the walls. But there's this huge question for Israel. It's like, um, what next? Like, this is not the story we thought it was going to be. This is not what we wanted it to be. Um, we're, not the, we're not doing what God has called us to do, and we're not sure we'll be able to again. So that's like the, the historical s overview of what's going on. Um, and there's these huge questions that are at play, like as you're reading the story, um, which is that earth and heaven are divided. 
God's presence is absent from the world. So we've talked about that quite a bit. Humans have rejected God. Uh, and the power of evil is at work in God's creation. And so we have things like death and sin and strife and suffering. And so for this world to be put right, the big question is our death must be destroyed. God's presence must be renewed. Um, the striving of nations must be dealt with. Suffering in the created order and amongst people must be dealt with. Um, and the spaces must be united between heaven and earth. So that's kind of where the story has left us. Um, oh, and then to understand the story, we've said three things over and over and over again. That the Bible is a human and divine word. So if we're going to understand it, we're going to read it, we have to do it through those two lens. Humans are writing it, but God is speaking through them. So we have to do this study to understand where they're coming from, their context, their history. That becomes super important today as we just talk about the prophets. Um, that this story is about God and his mission to bring his kingdom. Um, and then third, that context is king. So we always have to put the story into context to understand what it is that we're saying. Uh, before we look at the prophets, is there any questions or thoughts or outbursts of emotion? Nope. That's really great. Um, okay, great. So today we're going to talk about the prophets. We'll close out the Old Testament and talk about these figures. And it's a bit misleading the way that we've done it, I guess. The prophets exist throughout um, the story. They're really existing from... Uh, let's say here to here. Uh, they, we, we, we didn't hit them because we were just covering the history, but they are existing throughout this entire time frame. Their whole message is contextual. Like it doesn't make sense unless we understand it in context of what's going on around them. They exist throughout the entire thing. And a good way to picture them is that you have like First Kings, Second Kings, Chronicles. Those are like really normal history books, basically. I mean, they're ancient history books. But they're just telling the story of the kings. They're just telling the story of Israel. The prophets exist around the exact same time, and they're adding in um, the meat to the, the bones of the story. So they're adding in, like, what is theologically going on? What is God's side of the story? Um, what is Israel doing that needs to be confronted or, or that the history is playing out this way? They add all of the extra layers and context to it. And they're going to continue to connect Israel's circumstance to God or Israel's history to God or Israel's present to God or their future to God. They're always going to be connecting those two pieces together. Uh, and I think as we look at them, there is, we have, I think we have large misconceptions about what prophets are. So it always uh, taints our understanding of them and always taints our reading of them. I think especially in Utah, uh, we think of a prophet as someone who is constantly uttering new truths from God. Because uh, that's the prophet that we see here. That's, I think, a lot of times what we understand prophets to be. And there's truth to that when we look at the biblical narrative. Um, but I think there is kind of like five misconceptions that stop us from seeing the true prophet. And first is that first, first is that very little of what the prophets do is see the future. Um, that's I think it's almost always how we interpret them or always imagine them. They're always seeing something apocalyptic or they're always seeing something in the future. But if you actually read them, almost nothing is future telling. Almost nothing is seeing some vision of the future that no one else sees and then detailing it to Israel. They see very little of the future. Um, second, they have very few visions. This is the other thing that we think about with the prophets is they're like always having these like weird drug trippy visions. And that's very rare. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But it's very rare. Uh, or we think that they're hearing audible voices. Again, very rare that they're hearing voices. They're seeing visions, seeing the future, hearing audible voices. It's 
really not common. Um, we think that they're kind of like oddly religious people. And the truth is, is that they're normal people called from kind of like normal places in life. And I think that one of the other misconceptions is that we think they're all men, um, which I think, I don't know if it taints us a lot, but it probably does. Um, so the truth is, is like very little of what they see is the future. They have very few visions, hear very few audible voices. And if you're reading the stories of the prophets, what's helpful is that they're just normal people. Like Amos is a shepherd. Um, Isaiah is some kind of noble. Some of them are priests. Like Ezekiel was a priest. They're like normal people living normal life in Israel who are then kind of driven to this role that they see needing to be fulfilled or that God is calling them to be fulfilled. And their role that they fill is it some like weird religious role. When you actually kind of understand it contextually, they become more like pastors, preachers, artists, lawyers, and activists. And the role they play in society fits those things far more um, than like the street preacher with the bullhorn or um, kind of like the powerful religious figure. Their role is far more the um, pastor, preacher, poet, artist, lawyer, or activist. It fits far more like that. Um, and when it comes to the prophets being men, we think all the writing prophets are men. But most of the prophets that we're reading about in scripture are not writing prophets. And throughout there, there's tons of women prophets all throughout scripture. Women prophets who are advising kings, women prophets who are um, just living in the day and doing prophecy, which is the other thing, like, this, it seems like as we're reading the scriptures, there's actually prophets all over the place who are preaching or teaching or doing activist work or doing like street theater even, leading the people of Israel or calling the people of Israel towards repentance. And we know the names of many. We hear the names of some. It's just like, there was this prophet that she was over there doing these things and then learn nothing more. So there's like a lot of things that are going on in Israel's like religious life with these people that we don't get a lot of answers to, which I just think is super fascinating uh, that they're there leading, um, but that many of them are prophets. Even Moses' sister is a prophetess um, and like a noticeable one. And she sings and her stuff is written down. Um, See, that's cool. Um, When we look at the prophets, if we're trying to like figure out, okay, like what is your message. If it's not future seeing, if it's not hearing audible voices, like what is it that you're trying to tell us? The first thing is that the prophets are deeply concerned with the covenants. So they're going to continue to reference these covenants or talk about these covenants or bring these covenants up in Israel's life. In fact, there's a, in ancient uh, literature, there's styles of writing, right? We have this today, like you have uh, types of poetry or types of like ways to write history, ways to write business memos or ways to write legal documents. And in the ancient world, there was a way to write legal documents. And it's called, um, we call it the um, rib motif. I don't know why we call it that. Um, But a lot of the prophetic literature is written in this rib motif, which is lawyer speak. Um, it's not like religious conversations. It's, it's, it's law conversation. Like the people of Israel are representing, or the, the prophets in some of the way, in cases, are representing God on behalf of these covenants, like they're lawyers in a court, and they're bringing people of Israel to God in court and um, going to trial as prosecuting attorneys. And this is like their case against them, and they're listening it in a way that is like very lawyer-esque. Um, so you have this image that's being like drawn up and you actually hear that language being used the prophets are like I am bringing you into the courtroom um, and there's someone accusing you and I am the accuser bringing you before um, this because Israel is constantly breaking their covenant and covenants are legal contracts and so the 
lawyers, they act like lawyers and prophets. Um, one of the primary ways that that will get developed, out, so you have it in the law speech, but you have other prophets who will hit it and they'll hit it from a relational standpoint. Um, so like Hosea, who is existing right at the end of Israel, like the northern kingdom of Israel, he's super concerned with the covenant, but he's not concerned with it like in a legal standpoint. He's concerned with it in a relational standpoint. And so Hosea will actually marry a prostitute named Gomer who will cheat on him regularly and God will use as an object lesson to say, this is what it's like to be in relationship with Israel. And so it's not legal speaking necessarily, it's relational speaking. Like, this is what it's like to be in relationship with you. And so you'll see this imagery that um, Hosea will use it, Ezekiel will use it, a lot of the prophets will use it, that um, Israel has committed adultery or Israel has hoarded itself out to other gods. And the imagery that's being created is that you were in this, this covenant is best understood as a marriage. Um, you were, this was the honeymoon period. You were rescued by God. You were entered into this covenant relationship that was like a marriage. You have violated that covenant relationship. And in violating that by going and worshiping other gods, it's like you have cheated on your husband. And now he's like calling you to it. And so Hosea is like, living that out as an object lesson. But you'll see lots of prophets reference it, like you have committed adultery on your God, you have um, whored after other gods. Um, I got to preach in the book of Hosea, like the first year of East Avenue. And it was super fun to say whoredom every day. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was pretty fun. (laughs) Um, So they're super concerned with covenants. So they're going to continue to hit those themes. The second thing they're going to be super concerned with is they're going to speak and preach from Torah. In fact, most of what the prophets say, which what, and we often will think about it as future telling, is actually just them preaching from Torah. Like they're not envisioning something that's not already been said. They're just telling them what's already in the law. Like what are the consequences for the sins that you have done? Or what are the consequences for the decisions that you have done? Uh, so what they'll, they'll, the prophets will speak against Israel's religious practices their social injustices, they're not allowing the land to Sabbath, and the consequences from those sins. And almost all of it will come directly from things God has already told them in Leviticus or in the Torah. In fact, if you go to Leviticus 26, if you just want to read it on your own, um, you can list uh, almost all the consequences that you'll see later prophets cite for violating the sin. And I think we often see that as being like, oh, they're predicting something in the future but it's actually them quoting something from the past to say like if you abandon god then he won't protect the land anymore and you will be you will be attacked and conquered by other nations and they're reading they're quoting from leviticus 26 which comes here but they're doing it way over here and so people are like oh they're telling the future and they're like we are in the sense of what god says is true but we're not seeing something necessarily we're just referencing what God already said, that if you do these things, then this will happen. And that comes from Leviticus 26. Um, it's actually super fascinating to read because you'll just see like direct quotes as you're reading through the prophets. But I think it's super helpful because it can feel overwhelming to be like, what is future? Like you're trying to like process the prophets and say like, this seems like so much future telling when the truth is so much of it is just coming from um, Torah. This is also true of like the promises they're going to get. Uh, like, there's the prophets the prophets look they always have kind of like a similar narrative where it's like Israel you're doing things wrong you're screw ups you're sinning you're whoring against your God here are the consequences the Torah says for that for breaking the law and then it always ends with a piece of hope like 
but if you repent or God is faithful and he will rescue you. Well, all of that still comes from either Torah or things that have already been articulated in the covenants that God is establishing with his people. So they're just, they're like pastors who are preaching the truth or lawyers who are just looking at the law and saying like, this is, this is what we know to be true and trying to remind Israel of those things. Um, third, what's important to understand is that prophets exist within a context. Um, and that context determines a lot of what they're going to say um, and what I think confuses us. And this is difficult too because like the, if you're reading your Bible, um, you get like First and Second Samuel, you get Judges here, you get Kings, you get um, Chronicles, and these are like history books. And then you read like the Psalms and then you get the prophets. And so you're like, they feel just disconnected from the larger story, but they, they are happening over the same time that those history books are happening. And so you have like um, the prophet Amos, who is existing, he's a really early writing prophet for Israel. So he's like over here. Uh, I guess he'd actually be like here. That's no, not. Dang it. I didn't leave myself, I don't know why this happened. There's so much space here <laughs> between Exodus to Exodus, and then so little space for all of the kings of Israel. Um, it's not, don't use it as like an a- accurate estimate of time. <laughs> it's not scale. Yeah, it's not, it's not the scale for sure. Okay, so this is where Amos would be probably. I am my own fact checker, sir. <laughs> He is at, Amos is after King David and actually after King Solomon. Okay. He's in the, like, so the nation divides and then Amos shows up um, really early on. Uh, Amos, he's the one that's kind of famous for, like, God accusing, like, Israel and the Israelites, like, your sacrifices are not acceptable. Like, I don't want yeah. your sacrifice, right? Okay. Yeah, that's exactly who it is. So Amos shows up super early. And that's exactly what he says. He shows up to um, the kingdom of Israel, and he's like, hey, um, you may do the things of work. You may, like like Leviticus 1-7, through 7, you go to the temple, you do the sacrifices, you have the priests, but your heart is far from it because you have not cared for the poor. So Amos' whole book is that, like, I don't care about your religious feast or your uh, your worship he actually will say i hate your worship because you do not care for the poor like i don't care that you're going to the temple i don't care that you're sacrificing things it actually smells atrocious to me i want you to care for the poor and so amos is referencing torah what it is um interpreting it in a way that is relevant for this moment in this context and saying like you have violated it in this way uh, and god's not cool with you oppressing the poor and yeah, he exists during, we talked about this last week, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So Jeroboam um, is the guy who leads the civil war against Solomon's son. So he is, Amos is prophesying directly to Jeroboam, um, telling him like, you think you might be blessed because God let this happen, but if you oppress the poor, um, it won't go well for you. And yeah, so he's just like, it, there's a context to him. Like um, Hosea, who we just talked about, he is like, mm-hmm he's like over here let's see let's do let's do here this is where this gets difficult wrong probably I have no idea he's like a here I'll do like a little he's like 720-ish um, 
So he's, he's referred to, people often call Hosea the deathbed prophet because he's prophesying right at the end of Israel, the northern kingdom's reign. So he's, they're about to be taken over by Assyria, and Hosea's prophesying in that context. And I think it's interesting, as you look at him, you're like, oh, he's, he is future-telling because he's like saying that this kingdom will come and take over those people. But I think if we, like, if we look at it in context, like think about America during the Cold War. Who is our enemy always? Russia. And that's not future telling, it's current events. Like, Russia's the biggest, baddest neighbor on the block. They're gathering, um, like, weapons and technology, and we live in attention with them. This has been a really similar situation. Assyria has been conquering kingdoms all around Israel. Israel doesn't want to be conquered, and there's a tension brewing between the Assyrians and Israel. And so Hosea is like looking at the context around him, then looking at Torah, and he's telling the king, like, hey, this is a reality. Like, God's not going to protect you against these people because you have, you have been for so long violating Torah, not listening to this prophet, Amos. So God will not protect you from the current events around you. Um, Hosea is also the one who marries Gomer. Um, his whole life is quite heartbreaking in some senses. But also one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel we get. Because um, God is saying through Hosea, like, Israel's like Gomer, a prostitute who won't be faithful to me, but I will continuously be faithful to her. So Hosea has to go and actually buy his wife back from somebody else. And God's like, I will do the same. And then it points towards Jesus, who is the, he is the cost of buying God's people back. Um, just blow your mind for a second. Um, Yes, you have that. Oh, um, you have, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just kind of give you a little bit of context. Um, you have Isaiah, who is existing like pretty much during the same, he's like right here, let's say. And Isaiah is prophesying under Hezekiah. So Assyria takes over Israel. That same kingdom is going to try to take over Judah. And there's a guy named Hezekiah who's actually trying to pursue the Lord, who's like trying to be faithful. And Isaiah is one of his prophets. So he's in that land with him as they beat back the Assyrians and last another like 200 years. Isaiah is there. Um, he's under some other kings too. He's like, he has quite a decent like uh, prophetic timeline. But he's there prophesying during that context. And so he's speaking hope to Israel or to Judah about the Assyrians, um, advising Hezekiah, and a lot of his writings are speaking of those things. Um, you get a guy named Micah, who's like right around the exact same time, maybe a little after. Uh, he sees that there's, after Israel, I should have drawn it over here. Dang it. Um, after... After Judah beats Assyria, there's like all this prosperity in the land. And Micah's like, whoa, hold up, Holmes. Like, again, don't neglect the poor. Don't neglect God. And don't feel like you can just independently rule. Because Hezekiah actually ends his reign um, prideful and arrogant. And Micah shows up and he's like, whoa, just because you're wealthy, just because you succeeded, just because God showed up for you, doesn't mean you can act like you've got it on a lock. Um, Jeremiah is... Like here, he gets to see, um, 
he gets to prophesy during the fall of Jerusalem. He gets to see Jerusalem fall. If he wrote Lamentations, which a lot of people think he did, then he actually got to literally watch the city burn um, after he'd done prophecy there. He stays there in the kingdom because uh, the king of Judah at this time hates Jeremiah uh, because Jeremiah is constantly prophesying about like his own sin, about Judah's sin, about how they're going to be conquered by Babylon who conquered Assyria. So he gets like thrown in the well. Um, he gets like put in prison. He gets starved. He lives through the siege that we read about last week. Um, and then he stays in the city. That's Jeremiah's super sad. And then right afterwards, you get prophets like Ezekiel, who they're not writing from this perspective. They're, he actually goes with the first wave of exiles to Babylon and is prophesying and teaching inside of a foreign land in Babylon about why they're there, about what Israel has done wrong, about like what can do to make it right and such. So there's a lot more prophets than that. You know, so many more. There's some that, and there's like a few that are there when you get back from the Exodus. But I think some of these are helpful to understand just for you get like, they're speaking to a very specific context. And the more that we understand the context, the better. Like Isaiah, <coughs> he'll get mad at Hezekiah for showing the temple wealth to embassies from Babylon. And it's a really confusing moment in the story if you're like, what is he so upset about? Like, who did he show stuff to? And you're like, oh, now it makes sense. Babylon is the kingdom that will, that will eventually conquer everybody. And Hezekiah is just like, look at how wealthy we are. And Isaiah's like, you, that's bad move, Holmes. Like, you don't show, you don't show your, uh, your super sweet watch collection to robbers. I don't know why that's what I went with. <laughs> that was a weird choice. Um, I have never gone through a chronological Bible all the way, okay. so I don't know. <laughs> um, I could see it being really helpful, though, okay. uh, at least for this. Like, right, that's what I was thinking, like the New Testament, maybe when it, like the average, yeah. but like during the kings and prophets and stuff, I always get way confused during that time anyway. So. The, one, the one thing that may not be helpful is that um, the prophets are really good storytellers. And so if you're actually reading their books, they're constructed with deep intentionality. Mm -hmm. um, and so the one problem is that if you take, like Ezekiel, his is like madness. It's so well constructed. Like the pieces, the way that it's going together. It's a brilliant story. And if you take that and then rip it across for like the chronological, the, um, the storytelling, you might understand where it falls in the context, but you might miss the story. So you might want to just like have two that you're doing at the same time. Like, oh, this is the context. And Ezekiel's telling this larger story this way. Because, you know, he doesn't know. Like, he knows his context, but he's, like, preaching to contemporaries, so everybody knows his context. So he's, like, constructing a really good sermon and a good story that's going, you know, for 48 chapters. Uh, you know, I don't know if he understands that, like, that'll be confusing to us someday. You know what I mean? Like, so he has, like, he has his own kind of, like, mission as he's telling the story. Same with Isaiah. Like, the first, like, Isaiah's book is divided at least in four parts. And so it's helpful to kind of, like, see that when you're reading it but yeah no i think it'd be great or at least like have like a timeline nearish like you can google them and stuff like the old testament biblical timeline and then you could be like oh isaiah hezekiah great if that would help i don't know so that's an answer to your very simple question <laughs> story of my life <laughs> 
It's not not helpful. That's what it was. So <laughs> my wife tells me all the time. She's like, I just wanted a yes. So I'm just joking. She she tunes out way before then. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. That makes us pretty much pretty much. She's like, no, I don't care. Um, she's great. She really is. Um, okay, so so this is like this is like some of the larger themes and messages. Um, for like the second little bit of time that we have, what I wanted to do is just kind of flush out some of the things. That, so like we've kind of given them context. But what is it that they're actually saying? And um, what are some big themes that are showing up? And how are they developing those things? Uh, and to do that, I was just going to look at things that are um, connected to this. So they're going to speak lots of contextual truths, lots of like law truths. But we've talked about that there's a lot of questions that have to be answered about this period. And the prophets speak a lot about it because this is their big concern too. Like they're well aware of what we are and they want those things resolved too. And one of the things that the prophets are going to develop a lot, we saw this right at the end of Deuteronomy that God tells Moses, hey, the people of Israel will never do this. They'll never live it out. They'll never live out this promise here. And he says they won't until they circumcise the foreskins of their heart, until their heart changes. And that motif will continue to be kind of a thing throughout the prophets and, and throughout the histories. They'll be like, our hearts are, like God will always refer to them as like, your hearts are stubborn or you're a stiff-necked people, which just means that they're stubborn. Um, and the prophets would be like, they need the change of hearts. They need their, they need their mind changed. They need their lives changed. And then we come to Ezekiel, who's one of the last prophets. And he gives us really good news. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I, this is God speaking, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So the people are like, how can we do it? How can we do it? How can we do it? The prophets are like, you need to do this. You need to do this. And then God finally tells him, he's like, no, no, no I will do it. And this is like a huge moment of relief if you're the, because you're here, right? You have, you are in exile because you have not been faithful to all of this here because you haven't um, followed God. You haven't followed his precepts and his concepts. You haven't tried to work on your heart. So you're in exile and you're wondering like, how do we possibly get back? And God says through your prophet, I'll do it. I will transform your heart and I will give you a new spirit. Um, which then, that same thing, Jesus is going to pick up in the New Testament when he talks about God is about to pour out his spirit upon you, or God will transform your heart. Um, Paul will develop that theme that all like pushes us towards the New Testament. So God will do that. Um, we've talked about how the world needs to be dealt with and how the, the, the actual created order of the world needs to be put right because of sin. And the prophets love that theme. Um, the prophet Isaiah will say in Isaiah 41, um, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. And I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. And I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. So he's like, the world needs to experience renewal. Wildernesses need to be turned into flourishing places. And the prophets are like, God will do that. God will fix that. Um, Talk about how God needs to bring his kingdom and restore his presence. And the prophet Jeremiah, this is again, this is being hit a lot. Like this is being hit here. 
a lot. It's being hit all over. But the prophet Jeremiah says this thing that's awesome. He says in Jeremiah 3, At that time, Jerusalem, the city of God, will be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it. The presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Um, Jerusalem, which is cool, actually means um, um, city of peace or God's peace. And so the, Jerusalem is often, we didn't talk about this at all, but um, the psalmist will use that image a lot to say, like, it's, it will be God's city, and from it God will reign, and from it God will change the world. And Jeremiah sees this picture, he's like, yeah, yeah, God will go there, and from there all the nations will gather. So we're going to answer this, like, large cosmic questions of how will the nations be fixed, how will the people of Israel be a blessing to the world around it. It was like, oh, God will establish his reign in their city, and all the nations will come to it. And then if we actually go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel developed it even further and say in the middle of the city is a temple. And from that temple will flow living water into all the world that will transform the world and renew it um, in a way that we've been hoping for since here. The psalmist will develop that language even more and they'll talk about how the temple is actually an image for God. And then if you go to the New Testament, John the Apostle sees that city and he says in the middle of it, there is no temple because God's presence is the temple. And so he's taking his imagery from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, and the Psalms, and he's like, this is the fulfillment of that. When Jesus brings his kingdom, God's presence is there in the middle of it, renewing the world. That's pretty dope. Um, and then one image we haven't, we haven't talked about much at all um, is the image of Messiah. Uh, let's use, what's a good Messiah color? This one. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like royalty. That's great. Um, so, <laughs> so all throughout this story, um, and we've only been hitting big things, so we haven't looked at it. There is hints and hopes and foreshadows of a character called the Messiah, um, which is basically the chosen one, the Neo of Scripture, and um, that imagery is developing along in this sense where we're getting this hope that like this is going to be the guy. Or this is going to be the person who is the hero. And each time it develops, we get more and more information about him. Until finally, over here, you kind of like understand that this hero is the one who will bring the kingdom, restore Israel, um, unite the spaces, and do um, res- yeah, renew the earth. But the very first one you ever get is all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3. Um, the consequences of the fall are being like listed. And then right after them, God says... Hey, but just so you know, um, to you, Eve, will be born a son, and he will crush the tempter's head that we saw here. Um, but in doing so, his foot will be bruised. I'm like, oh, that's a weird image. And it doesn't make any sense, really, until the story develops, and especially when you get to the cross. Um, in Genesis 12, though, with um, we've learned... In Genesis 12 you learn that that character is going to be from the line of Abram. Um, that whoever this hero is is going to be an Israelite from this guy. Um, as the story continues, you learn here, we didn't talk about the patriarchs much, but here's the patriarchs. You learn that this person will be from the tribe of Judah, um, which is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. As it continues going, you're going to learn that he's not only going to be from the tribe of Judah, but he'll be a king from the tribe of Judah. You get the Deuteronomy, you learn that he'll be a prophet, a king and a prophet, a prophet like Moses, in fact. Which is a crazy image because kings don't tend to be prophets until um, we get to David. 
David is a prophet king, and we learn that not only will he be a king from Judah, an Israelite, he'll be a king in the line of David, and his dynasty will reign forever. And there's lots of things we learn here, too, that I'm just, like, skipping over. So it's not, like, huge birth. We actually learn a lot about him and the prophets. Um, but this is a huge moment that we learn that he will be a king in the line of David. As you continue going, and here you get just overwhelmed with details about this character. In Isaiah, you learn a lot. In Isaiah, you learn that he'll be born of a virgin. You learn that he'll be a suffering servant, which is a new image we haven't actually seen much of. That he'll suffer for his people, um, which is not a thing you expect kings and heroes to do. Um, you learn that he'll be bringing a kingdom. You learn that the government will be upon his shoulders. And you learn that his name is Emmanuel which means God with us, which is this crazy revelation all of a sudden because here for so long, the people of Israel have been like, how do we fix the world? How do we change the system? How do like we endure and fix everything? And finally, God is like, hey, I'm going to do it. Like I'm going to come into the world and I'm going to redeem and rescue in a way that you could not. I will be Emmanuel. And this is huge because then we come in the New Testament. So you have, after the Old Testament, um, there's this 400-year... Nope, can't use Emmanuel, purple. Um, black. Black is kind of in the storytelling color. You come to this place where after this, there's just this like 400-year silence. The intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New. And so they've been left with all of these hopes and promises from the prophets. They've been coming back from exile. They're rebuilding... Um, Babylon has fallen to Persia. Persia then falls to Greece. Greece then falls to Rome. So their life is very hectic. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you get these new authors that show up in the scene. And one of them is named Matthew. And he begins to say, um, he begins to write a story called, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, which means the anointed one or the Messiah, the son of David, including all of that promise, the son of Abraham. And if you're an Israelite who hears those words, all of this comes rushing into your mind. Like all of those promises about the Messiah, all of those hopes that have been touched on by the prophets and by earlier covenants then come rushing into your mind as it says, this is the guy, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Nia, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Matthew Glanisay, who has come to save his people. In fact, his name is Jesus, which is great because it means um, it's a Greek form of um, Yehoshua, Joshua, which means God saves, and he will save his people, which is this really weird moment because it says his name is God saves, and he will save his people. And you're asking, like, well, who will save his people? And they're like, oh, Emmanuel will save his people. God with us. Because this character is God. This is a super, I think it's super interesting. Um, people often ask about the New Testament or about scripture in general, like why don't they just call Jesus God? And I think because if you're a Jew, you're like, that's a dumb question. We've always known that he was supposed to be God. We've always known that since here, that that was going to be who it was, that the only way that the Messiah could rescue us if he was truly God. So, that's the prophets. <laughs> um, 
Uh, any questions before we uh, close up? We've got a few minutes, so. Great. No questions. <laughs> cool. Well, um. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Not in June. <laughs> that will be gone all of it. Um, sometime in the summer, though, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll figure out what the, I don't know what the other people are trying to teach because Kyle's going to teach a class in the summer, too. Um, so I need to get coordinated with him to figure out what the other class is and when they're going to happen. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll follow it up with the Story of Everything Part 2 New Testament. Yay. Did Solomon enslave demons to make his temple? Um, it's like a weird thing I heard once. I'm going to say, no, I don't know where that came from. It uh, was like on a TV show about like Templars and apparently uh, Solomon nice. has a magic ring. There's a lot of weird <laughs> stuff about Solomon out there. It might have been his <laughs> 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 To be fair, to be fair, like Solomon, <laughs> there's a lot of weird <laughs> stuff about Solomon in like rumor legend. Yeah, that was one of the things is apparently he had a magic ring. Oh, my God.